Right, well, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. Today is uh, it's the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. It's also the, uh, the second part. We, we've started this passage two weeks ago. We're going to conclude it today. So again, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the words of Christ, you may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now as we come to, this, uh, to, the, to the end of this uh, the discourse given by Christ from the Mount of Olives to his disciples, we pray that you would speak to us today that as Christ's disciples, that the Spirit um, would give us understanding, that you would reveal to us the areas in our life in which, and the opportunities in our life in which we have to serve you to feed you, to clothe you, to visit you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Robin Hood is considered one of the best known tales of English folklore uh, and often used and abused to various ends depending on who's telling the story. But there are, count- and there are countless variations of it. But the version most familiar to me, and possibly to some of you, might be the, the animated version that was released in 1973. With, uh, Robin Hood, where he's the, uh, the fox, and then you have uh, Prince John as the lion, and just different characters like that. And it's set in the 12th century, during the reign of King Richard... While he is on his, uh, the third crusade, so he, he's, he's gone somewhere. And while Richard is away on crusade, his younger brother, Prince John, rules in his absence. And Prince John becomes greedy, right? And he starts uh, excessively taxing the people. And Robin Hood steals back the taxes to give back to the poor people of Nottingham. 
While I believe that the movie misses the mark in presenting uh, theft as the answer to legalize theft, which is what taxation is, at least uh, that form of taxation, I do believe one of the morals throughout the narrative which carries biblical weight is the, the courageous and costly loyalty that Robin Hood demonstrates to the rightful King Richard, in spite of his absence and of his unknown return, uh, and as far as he knows, of his not coming back. Ultimately, of course, in the story, King Richard does, in fact, return, and in doing so, uh, in, in this version anyways, Prince John is in prison, and those who, uh, in his accomplices, while Robin Hood is vindicated, and of course he gets the girl in the story as well. Now, the loyal servants of the de facto Prince John had faithfully obeyed his orders and his instructions all, all along the way, running errands and favors for the friends of their master, of their, king, of their so-called king, proving themselves to be hardworking and profitable servants of his kingdom. And perhaps you can imagine the unexpected end after those years of climbing the social ladder when they end up losing it all, condemned along with their treasonous master. And so it will be when Christ, the master and king, returns at the end of the age to judge the works of all the living and the dead. Ever since the focus of the Olivet Discourse has shifted from the imminent coming of judgment upon Jerusalem all the way to the future coming of Christ to judge the world at the end of the age. Christ has been using various parables all based on a basic kind of master-servant dynamic to illustrate and instruct his disciples on, on various um, principles. And the first one was of being ready for the master's unknown return at any moment. The second was of being prepared for the possibility of his delayed return. And then, and third was of being faithful and fruitful in the master's service until he returns. But now the most obvious yet overlooked aspect to everything we've learned so far is brought to the forefront as of Christ's concluding description of his second coming to judge the world. As important as it is to live in the present with our constant eye to his coming, with our eye to eternity, and to being diligent and fruitful in our master's service until he comes, it is not enough that we prove zealous and plentiful in our works if they all prove to be in the service of an imposter, of an idol fashioned according to your own liking and glory, to whom you've slapped on the name Jesus Christ. There is only one true master, one God, one judge, to which all mankind must give an account, and there is only one Savior. And in today's passage, Jesus reveals that during his physical absence, your loyalty, loyalty to him will ultimately be evident to all by your love for his disciples, for one another. Two weeks ago, we dwelt upon verses, just those first few verses, verse 31 to 33, grounding the context of our passage within the universal and divisive portrayal of the judgment throne of the exalted Son of Man who will come in glory. It was, it, we saw that it was universal because it includes all nations, and it was divisive because Christ demonstrates there is no middle ground, there was, there's no sitting on the fence, but that there would be a division to his right and to his left for all eternity. And so we are beholding that long foretold day here, when you will be ushered before Christ and be separated, the righteous to receive an eternal inheritance in his kingdom and the wicked to be cast into eternal punishment in hell. 
Now we conclude the remaining text where Christ illustrates the, the how that he will publicly demonstrate the d- distinguishing mark that will separate the sheep from the goats. And so in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the title king is now used in the place of the former title, Son of Man. Pronouncing his hearty welcome to those who are blessed by the Father. Note that the nature of their blessing is not rooted in the inheritance which waits them. It's not, they're not blessed because, you got, because of the good things coming to them, though of course that is included. But first of all, foundationally, their blessing is in their relationship to the Father. Come, you who are, ble- who are blessed by my Father. We also see there that the blessing is already theirs before they have made the inheritance their own. Come, you who are blessed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this is not one of those shakable kingdoms of man which are of this world. Rather, here is the eternal kingdom which Christ brings with him into the world. And so the certainty of this blessing is likewise reiterated by the invitation in verse 34 to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's no moving this inheritance. An inheritance is not earned. It is the fruit, uh, if we think of it in terms of our situation, it's the fruit of the labor of parents or parents' parents handed down as a gift to their offspring. And while all of mankind are God's offspring in the the sense that, as Acts 17 says, in Him we live and move and have our being, that we have life because God has given us life, that can, that there, there is that sense. The Bible also clearly explains that all mankind has turned aside from God. Casting our birthright aside and exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And so there is a sense in which we can say we are the offspring of God. There is a sense in which we can say we are the enemies of God. We have nothing to do with the holy and righteous God. Ephesians 2 verse 3 states that in our sin we are now by nature children of wrath. That's the chil- We are not children of God, we're children of wrath, of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so how could this be? To whom can King Jesus then say, Come, inherit the, uh, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? If, if we're looking at the end and his coming. To this, the rest of Ephesians 2 explains in verse 4. By nature, you are a children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And so there is only one way for any sinful man to be blessed by the Father. And that way is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So John chapter 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So that, though, that is how we become the blessed children of the Father to inherit this kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. Whatever you do, do not look to this passage, to the next passage as we go through this, to learn how to get into heaven. That's not, that's not the, the, the focus here. Look to the next passage to test and to reveal the nature of your, inher- inter- your eternal inheritance. Ultimately, the, we all have an eternal inheritance. Both sides here have an eternal inheritance. The question is, which one is yours? And so let's look to this passage to help us to, to test and to reveal and to discern, to confirm our inheritance, which is either in Christ or it's in sin, in the first Adam. So he goes on to explain in verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Here we have Jesus, the sovereign ruler and judge of the world, explaining himself to man. He's giving an account of those separated to the right. And why they aren't those that have been separated to the left. Now in 1 Samuel verse, chapter 16 verse 7. He notes a common verse. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And the truth is that God has no need of a public trial of the wicked and righteous deeds of men in order to separate the righteous from the wicked. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Like, they're, 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 this is not being done for God's, for His sake, for Him to figure out, okay, who's the sheep, who's the goats here? He knows His sheep. Our sovereign Lord is under no legal obligation to prove the justice of his judgment before man. If it were God's will, he could execute his judgment with the snap of a finger, if that's what he wanted to do. And he would be right. He would be, he would be, uh, there would be no um, wrong in doing so. But God's purpose in judgment, I believe part of what we see here is that his purpose in judgment is ultimately orchestrated in a way so as to elevate and display the holy justice and righteousness in the sight of all. And I didn't put this verse down here, but I also had thought of Revelation chapter 19. The, the word hallelujah, is, I think it's used five times there. It's the only place in the New Testament that the word hallelujah, the, the Hebrew transliteration, is used in the New Testament. And they're saying hallelujah because God has executed his justice. They're praising God for his judgment upon the wicked. And Isaiah 5 verse 15, it says, Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. He he puts it on display for all to see. So that's partially why I believe this is going on here. It's not so much for, uh, for God you know, to, to determine this, but, that God, but for us, in order that God's justice might be seen for what it is. That He might be praised and glorified for it. Now in verse 37 it says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and, and visit you? I just wanted to know here, I didn't put it down, but some people get confused that, that idea of visiting them in prison. 
it's going to be further clarified here as we go along. Um, but the idea was there of visiting their persecuted brothers, right? That they, were not, they, would, they would not be ashamed. To be, to be put in prison would be costly. Uh, and and, and at the, in those days, uh, the government didn't, like our taxes didn't pay for people to be in prison. You, you had to have people bring you food or else you wouldn't survive. And so if you were be, put in prison for uh, your faith in Christ, you would be dependent upon people your brothers and sisters in Christ bringing you and, and, and sustaining you there. But of course, that would also make them exposed and vulnerable to persecution. And so there was a real risk in doing that. And so he goes through this list and it says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now many scholars have mistakenly understood one of the least of these brothers in verse 40 and 45 to refer to all and anyone who has ever been hungry or distressed or needy and thereby determine the base. If you just say that this is just anybody who, right, who is thirsty to the poor, to those who are in need of drink, when you do that, the consequence of that kind of that, um, the consequence of, of thinking that way is that it, that that it would determine that the basis of acceptance into the kingdom then must therefore be upon your deeds and your mercy and your compassion. Right? If it's those who take care of the poor, those who care for the needy, that that God, that that's going to be how that we we get our way into the kingdom. And one liberal theologian, Gunther Borkum, he believes that this passage not only eliminates the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but also between Jesus' disciples and unbelievers. So that all mankind will ultimately be judged by the response to human need. And on this basis, even some even unprofessing Christians will be numbered among the sheep because of how they cared for those who were hungry and who were thirsty and who needed clothing. Uh, that's a very, I mean, that's a common idea in kind of liberal progressive Christianity, but it's becoming more and more common just in general in the church. The problem with that popular notion is, that, is their careless and, and overly broad identification of the least of Jesus' brothers in this passage. When we look to the surrounding context of Matthew, as the book as a whole, to guide our interpretation of what, what he means here in this passage, who specifically does Jesus make a point of identifying as his brothers and sisters throughout Matthew? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Matthew 12, verse 50 while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, that is in the flesh, they stood outside asking to speak to him. They thought he was getting a little wild with his, his ministry. But he replied to the man who told him, uh, who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So he's... This is perfect. He's begging the question. Who are my mother? Who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's plenty of other passages we can go to where that same concept is, is reiterated. Or in regard to be considered the least of Christ's brothers, consider his warning to his disciples in Matthew 18. For he's seeking, they're seeking to become great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Notice there. 
What little, is he just saying little ones, period? No, he's saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck than to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It'd be better, and saying it'd be better to have that than to be what the goats are going to get in what he's describing in our passage in Matthew 25. It is only natural to interpret Jesus referring to the least of his brothers as a reference to, any, to his disciples who are in a position to be ministered to, to be cared for, who are in a, a position of need and vulnerability, to be served. And beyond identifying who the least of these brothers are, that the Matthew 18 passage, we, we see it, it also clarifies, so it's, it, it tells us who they are, they're his, his disciples, but it also helps clarify this relationship. What is Jesus talking about here when he says, as he did to the, one of the least of these, he did to me? Well, Matthew 18, verse 5, similarly says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, receives Jesus. So Jesus repeatedly identifies himself with the treatment of his followers in a very direct, tangible sense, making your expression of compassion for his disciples because they're Jesus' disciples, for his sake, making that equivalent to expressing your compassion for Jesus himself. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Matthew 10, 40, he says, whoever receives you, the disciples, he says, Whoever receives you receives who? Me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive the righteous person's reward. And he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple... Right. For that reason, because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Likewise, on the side of those who mistreat Jesus' disciples, who do harm to Jesus' disciples, note the language that is used in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Very clear that the threats are against, on earth, in the present, uh, invisibly against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way... He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting my disciples? No, he was persecuting the disciples, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He, makes it, he takes it, makes it very personal, very direct. The treatment of his disciples. I do not belabor this point to discourage you from demonstrating the mercy and kindness of Christ to unbelievers who are in need of a helping hand. Scripture is clear that the love of neighbor knows no bounds in this world, including a love for our enemies. And so I emphasize this distinction partly as a corrective to its misunderstanding how it's been applied in the past, but, and not to suggest that the main focus of this passage is intended to fall upon caring for Christ's disciples, the least of his disciples. That's a key piece of this. So I, I, that's why I highlight it. But that's not what it's all pointing to. 
the main focus here ought to land our gaze upon Jesus himself, who he says, as you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. It's about Jesus and your service to Christ. Whom his disciples represent and serve on earth. And notice they said, I want you to notice their response Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did for one of the least of these, you did it. Uh, Least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Uh, Something there that I think ought to stand out to us here is the fact that in verse 37 to 38, they seem surprised or confused as to when they could possibly have served Jesus in those practical ways. Right? Like, like Lord, when, when did we do this? I mean, they're not complaining. Um, they're, they're, they're relieved. They, this is not bad for them, but they're, like, they're not getting it. It's not connecting. And I just wanted to point this out to, that, that I think it highlights a tendency that we all have. Jesus knows this, and he, he highlights this tendency that we all have to underestimate the spiritual and eternal significance and effect that our physical labors in this world have when we commit all that we do in faith and obedience to the glory of Christ. That the kind of daily decisions and duties we tend to categorize as the secular or mundane realms of our lives, Christ was saying to him, you are doing that for me. You are serving me. James 2.14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just talking about the fruit of faith. Of a living faith in Christ. And so then he turns to the goats who are cursed on the left. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The most devastating sentence the unbeliever can receive is the very thing he ignorantly seeks the majority of his life. That the holy God of Scripture would leave him alone and torment his conscience no more. Leave him to himself and his own devices. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Some people here ponder over whether Jesus is speaking of an actual fire, or if he is just speaking metaphorically here. But the consistent testimony throughout Scripture makes it clear that hell is at the very least, I'll say this, it makes, I believe it is clear to me that hell is at the very least to be understood as an actual physical location in creation involving an actual lava-like fire. But I would also suggest that it is possible in our limited and finite understanding that we currently possess that this description is simply the clearest and most accurate way available to us uh, in our current state to be able to comprehend the horror of the eternal state of hellfire. In other words, I believe the the fire of hell will be a real physical fire. But in the eternal state, it will actually be more real than what you understand fire to be. 
and experience in this life. That reality now will only will be reality times ten, times a hundred, exponentially in eternity. That the eternal state will actually be more real, more physical, more horrifying than we are capable of understanding in our current state of decay and corruption. So, in other words, I'm saying if it isn't fire, it's, it's fire and more than fire. It's more than that. We, we can't get, that. we can't even get to that at this state, at this stage. One last little note for that here. It, it's interesting that in the case of the sheep in verse 34, we see that he, uh, that, uh, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. I don't, I don't want to make too much of this, but he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That is for the people of God chosen before the foundation of the world, he says. And here in verse 41, it specifically says that the cursed are to go into the eternal fire prepared beforehand, not for you, not, not to the, he's not saying to the goats, he says, prepared for the devil and his angels. Which to me suggests that the cursed who follow after the devil go to a place for which they have not been fitted. Or which has not been fitted for them. In other words, hell is not where any human being wants to be or will want to be. Contrary to uh, popular sayings and and ideas of of going to a place uh, to party for all eternity. It's clearly being presented as the last place any human wants to be. The same burden of proof for their sentencing we see is provided to the cursed. But, it, but the opposite reason is given. The opposite fruit is given. So verse 42, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, notice they call him Lord. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Again, I think there is a point to be drawn from the confusion and ignorance of the cursed here. It's not the point, but it is a point. That we would naturally expect, we would think that this group, right, those who are cast into hell, we would expect them to, 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 to only include people who would exhibit outright hostility and rejection towards Christ and His teachings. But as far as these people who are asking this question are concerned, they appear to have no problem with Jesus Himself. They call Him Lord. They say, when did we see you hungry, Lord? Or thirsty, or stranger, or naked? And and when when did we not minister to, to you? They imply by their question that they would have done so had they known that their maker and judge was in their midst. Had they known that they had an opportunity to, to do so. They're saying we didn't, we didn't get the chance to. We would have. But alas, Jesus was in their midst, as represented by his disciples. And they demonstrated their rejection of Christ by their neglect to receive those that Jesus sent in his name to proclaim his word. A lot of people are convinced that they, they, they believe they have no problem with Jesus. And they believe they're on good terms with Jesus, right? Jesus is their, their pal. But these same people are apathetic towards Christ's disciples. And some even would rather have nothing to do with the local body of Christ. Yet in their minds, everything is good between them and Jesus. And I, I 
truly believe it. That's what I, I believe this passage comes down to this. I, I think this passage deals a, a fatal blow to that kind of deceptive thinking um, and very popular mindset of people who claim the name of Christ today. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I look around here today, and I am burdened the thought of the possibility that you might not be walking in the joy and the obedience of the Lord toward your brothers and your sisters in Christ. I want you to to look around the sanctuary today. Your brothers, your sister next to you, your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, your your community. Do you love one another? I'm not asking if you like one another. I believe these things, affections ought to follow, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Not asking how you feel about one another. That'll come later. Do you love one another? You like to visit and enjoy the the company of your friends. Do not the unbelievers do that? If if that's all we're talking about is, yeah, we can get together and we can sing some... Have you ever seen how some people worship at, at concerts? that aren't worship concerts, and how they can get together and sing and enjoy each other's presence. If that's all we're talking about, the unbeliever can do that just as much, if, and I would argue many of them do it a lot better than us. As Hebrews 10.25 commands us, let us not neglect to meet together But may it not be as a matter of religious principle alone. Rather, as the previous verse says, let us consider how to stir one another up in love, to love and good works. So here, uh, look around you again. Here are your mothers and your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. Here among you and in the church abroad are the holy people of God who you will spend all eternity with in the presence of our common Savior and King. And having said that, as I was thinking about what to say, I was going to say, therefore, you might as well get used to it now. But... That actually isn't true, if you think about that. If it's about getting used to it, right? You you will not be required to tolerate those whom you call brothers and sisters for all eternity. You You will not be required to tolerate them for the rest of eternity. Because if you have to tolerate them, if in your heart it is something that you have to get used to, then I fear that at the judgment, you will no longer have to tolerate their presence anymore. Don't worry about having to tolerate them anymore because you will be eternally separated from them as they enter into the inheritance of the kingdom prepared for them. And so if you cannot see and love Christ in the least of those who call upon His name, then the truth is is you do not see and believe and love Christ as He will be revealed at His second coming. In 1 John 4.24, He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If the Lord is convicting you about that, don't brush over it. Don't set it to the side. Don't set it. Don't just write it off. Repent of your hardened heart. Confess that to the Lord. Confess it to anyone that your heart has been hard to. And embrace the true Christ who lives and works by His Spirit in the world today through and among His little brothers and sisters who believe and follow Him. And do this, and in doing this, resolve thereafter to love your enemy, warning them of the wrath to come. And to believe in the crucified and risen Savior and Judge of the world, Jesus Christ. Our verse conclude our, our passage. The the this this uh, again this famous discourse on the this, the Mount of Olives concludes with verse forty six. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The judgment scene. And the all of it discourse as a whole here closes with, the, with a clear emphasis upon the eternal consequences that are at stake. Throughout the entire discourse, the word eternal is only mentioned in this section only uh, once in verse 41 and twice here in verse 46. And I, I, I don't want to close us off with... with, a, with Technicalities, but I do want you to note this and be aware of this. It was not the intention of the King James uh, translators, I don't believe anyways, but they translated the same Greek word, the eternal, in our most modern translations. In Greek, it's the word ionios. They translate it in, in the King James as everlasting, in regard to the punishment of the wicked. So they go to everlasting punishment. But then they translate the word, the same word, Ionios, as eternal in regards to the righteous and their reward. So in the King James it says, And these shall go, the, the goats shall go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And unfortunately, I, I, I bring this to your attention because it opens the door uh, for the annihilationists who deny that there will be an ongoing eternal punishment of the wicked in hell. They, they argue that the destruction of the wicked is an everlasting punishment in the sense that once they are destroyed and consumed by fire, they, they cease to exist. They will never, right, that's, that's their eternal, uh, sorry, everlasting Punishment, And some will find grounds for this, as I said, in, this, in that English translation of the King James Version. Because they, it distinguishes everlasting for the wicked and eternal for the righteous. But again, I just point, point you to the fact that both in the Greek, both words are, are ionios, the same word for eternal. So in other words, the punishment, however, I mean, if you're going to translate it that way, you have to do that the same with the reward for the righteous then. Whatever, whichever way you go, you have to be consistent. And so the punishment is precisely the same duration as the life. The one, who, the one is no more temporary than the other. Both are eternal. In heaven, the righteous will be forever anticipating future fellowship and joy in Christ's presence while enjoying it in present bliss. And in hell, the unrighteous will be ever looking forward to the wrath to come while enduring the present torment of fire day and night forever and ever, as Revelation 20 verse 10 says. So as I conclude here, only two categories of people have been consistently presented to us. 
since the opening of the scene of the nations being gathered and people being separated either to his right or left, sheep or goats, blessed or cursed. And so now it all culminates with one of two separate and unalterable destinies, either eternal punishment or eternal life. And choose this day whom you'll serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for your glorious grace and mercy and your love that you've shown to us in Christ Jesus, your Son. We praise you for your justice and your righteousness. Lord, in that we praise you that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy and that you have given this warning to us that you do not, again, as, the bio, as we often, people have this idea of you being unfair, being unjust in your treatment of the wicked. Lord, uh, you are, your grace is, is unmeasured in your kindness and your patience that you show to those who walk in rebellion against you. Including us. while we were still enemies were brought near and reconciled to you by the blood of Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to take all all that has been uh, given to us today, all that this means for us in in eternity and, and what it means for us today as you have commissioned us and sent us into the world to proclaim your kingdom. And as we are to be about your work and about your business, Lord, and and, and as we look to your coming and to your return, Lord, help us to keep our eye on Christ, on the Master, on the King, on the only Judge to whom we must give an account and to whom we must be concerned about in the present. And that we would be abound in, in, in love and in fruits and the fruit of loving those who represent you on, in, in this world. And that that would be manifest to love us, God, as, as, as John 13 says, Lord. Maybe the question we don't need to be asking is, isn't asking, do, do I love my brother? Do I love my sister? But as I think about that passage in John, do other people think that I love my brother and sister? Is it visible? Can other people see that I love them? Lord, help us to be honest about that. Help us to to be objective and to be real about that. And lead us by your Spirit. Unite us in your Spirit. To love and good works towards one another. That the world may know that we are yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.